What do you think about when you think of God giving his law? God giving his law. Some people think of God like a giddy and twisted traffic cop who gets his jollies off of ticketing those who transgress his legal codes. Some think immediately of all the thou shalt nots and feel like God is, according to D.A. Carson, in his language, the worst cosmic party pooper there could ever be, out to destroy all the fun of his humans that he created. Worse yet, some conceive of God as a wicked taskmaster who wants nothing more than to crush his created people by his rules and regulations. Well, no matter what preconceived ideas you might have today about God giving his law, today we receive clarifications about who God is and why he gave us his commands. As we've been walking through the book of Exodus, we've seen that God is forming for himself a people for his glory. And the book of Exodus can be broken up into three different sections. So we're just going to continue our series here in the book of Exodus. And the Exodus can be broken up into three different sections. If you're taking notes, it's pretty useful. I think it's useful to have uh, an outline of the book as you read through it. So that way you know what exactly is going on. Gives you kind of a big picture thing to give you an outline of the book. So first section is God leads his people out of Egypt. That's chapters 1 to 18. The second section is God gives Israel his law, chapters 19 to 24. And then third, God commands Israel to build a tabernacle. That's the third section there, chapters 25 to 40. So number one, God leads his people out of Egypt. That's chapters 1 to 18. God gives Israel his law, chapters 19 to 24. And then God commands Israel to build the tabernacle, chapters 25 to 40. So we already finished the first section. Now we actually touch and go into the second section. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 19. You're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you. It can be found on page 60. And here we see that God is preparing his people for his law. The Ten Commandments. That's in 19 to 20. Here God gives his people the Ten Commandments. And then also in terms of uh, the rest, next week we're going to look at the rest of chapter 20 on into chapter 24. And there we see God kind of expanding on uh, what the Ten Commandments means, and then he gives other laws. And so this section here, the second section, 1924, can be considered the Book of the Covenant, as some people refer to it, Book of the Covenant. The outline today simply follows the, the passage in terms of the flow of the passage. So point number one is the people are claimed by a holy God. Second, they are met by a holy God. And then third, they are commanded by the holy God. So first, they are claimed by the holy God. Second, they are met by the Holy God. And third, they are commanded by the Holy God. So claimed, met, commanded. Claimed, met, commanded. Let's look first at the, the fact that they are claimed by a Holy God. This is in chapter 19. In Israel's history, it is true. I mean, we've already gone through the book of Genesis. In Israel's history, it's true that, the people, that God had already claimed the people for himself. Think of Abraham, Moses' ancestor. God had already entered into a relationship with him. And then all of his descendants, his chosen descendants, the ones on whom the blessing had gone to, God had entered into a relationship with his people and given him promises that he would make his people, Abraham, into a multitude, that he would give his people a land, and then also that one from his line would be a blessing to the world, bring salvation to the ends of the earth, which is fulfilled in Jesus. So God had already entered into covenant with a the people. They had already been claimed but in our passage today, 
God gives his people another covenant. Kind of you can think of the foundational covenant with Abraham. God gives another covenant. And this is the covenant of Moses. So when I see that the people are here claimed by a holy God, I mean that God's claim on them is clarified or expanded from what he had already told Abraham hundreds of years before. In fact, even what he had already told Adam and Eve. And then this is further expanded in Abraham and further expanded here in Moses. So go ahead and look at the background in 19.1 here. And if you uh, just skim with the skim there, uh, we can just kind of go through there. The people of Israel were in their third month of the Exodus out of Egypt. And what happens is they arrive back at Mount Sinai. And if, you, if you've been walking with us to the book of Exodus, you know that this is significant in Moses' life. God had already called Moses out of the burning bush at Mount Sinai. Moses goes on up. He takes off his feet because it is holy ground, not because the mountain itself is holy, but because God's presence is there. And then Moses meets with God. But here, Moses is actually not only the one who is standing here before God, it is all the people of Israel, all of God's people. And here some estimate that there were a couple million, even three million people standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Verse 3, look there, it says that Moses went up to meet God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall save the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Look there at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What he's talking about, the covenant and the words, he's talking about the the words that are going to come, the words that we're going to look at in a little bit. But in these verses, what I want to highlight is the why God claims a people. Did you notice that that there are three terms there in verses 5 and 6? You shall be first my treasured possession, second my kingdom of priests, and then third a holy nation. So for one moment there, just take, take a minute. For those of you who think that God is... You know, the cosmic party pooper, the tyrant who wants to destroy people. You know, what do you do with the relationship language here? This is a relationship of love, language of love that is used. First, he says that you people are my treasured possession. Not just simply a possession that you can do whatever you want with. You know, you have it here and then you throw it away. No, this is a possession that he purposefully treasures. So imagine a king who goes and obtains the most precious jewels... You can think also of, let's say, a painting or a statue or, or even think of, think of what a king does, a king does as he sets out to build his kingdom, his palace, to display his fame among the nations. That's what's going on here. But it isn't inanimate objects that display God's glory. It is a living and breathing people. This should point you right back to Adam and Eve. This is why God made people in the beginning. Man and woman were made in his image. To live in a relationship with him and display his character to the watching world. And this is captured here in the very next phrase here. God's people are a kingdom of priests. You don't have to be very religious to understand what a priest does. We know from popular television or movies, we know that priests stand as representatives to God. What a priest does as he meet, is he mediates God's blessing and God's presence to others. And so ancient Israel here is to be a kingdom that mediates God's presence and blessings to the rest of the world. And here we understand more of why Israel was God's treasured possession, a special possession. 
It's because they had a special task. If you notice there in, in verse in verse uh, in verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. Interesting there, he says, you are my treasured possession, the earth is mine. So sometimes people get kind of confused in terms of the gap, but I think here he's saying, look, you are my treasured possession because I want you to fulfill the special task of going into the entire world, which is already mine, and displaying my entire glory to them. So you see here the special task, and he says, third, that you are a holy nation. Now, some of you guys, when you think of holy nation or holiness, you think of God's people ought to do good and righteous things. Now, that is true, and we're going to see that from the Ten Commandments. But the question that must be asked is, why? Why are God's people a holy nation? Why are God's people supposed to do holy and righteous things and good things? Well, it's because the people are, a, are, are the people of a holy God. And the Hebrew word holy literally means set apart. They are distinct. They are unique. Just as their father is set apart, distinct, and unique, so his children are set apart, distinct, and unique. So you see God's role for God's children? They are God's special treasure. They are God's ambassadors to the world, a fallen and sinful world, and so they are set apart for a holy God. So here we see that they are claimed by a holy Lord for his holy purposes. And as God moves to establish his covenant with his people, we see that God comes to meet with his people. This is point number two. They are met by the holy Lord. By the way, uh, this sermon here is going to be a whole lot of explanation up front and then application towards the end. Typically, application is kind of interspersed, but here it's explanation and then application. But we see that as they are claimed by a holy Lord for his holy purposes, now God comes to meet with his people. They are met by a holy God. Uh, this comes in 19.7 till the end. Moses tells all the people what the Lord had tell, told him. Look there in verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? This is a covenant, kind of like a marriage relationship. Think of the husband and wife. They both enter into covenant based on their vows, based on their pledges. And so the Lord calls Moses to prepare the people for his coming. He says there in verse 9, go ahead and look there. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that, you, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And here we have the primary purpose for why God is going to come and meet with the people. Really, it's to validate Moses's, Moses as a type of mediator between the people and God. That's, why, that's one reason why God is going to come in this spectacular uh, scene here. Now, as we go through this section, it might be a little off-putting for those of you who might be visiting, or even maybe some of you Christians. It might be a little bit off-putting to see what happens here. But that is because this is framed in holiness categories. Righteous categories versus the unrighteous. Holy versus the unholy. And we see here that holiness is maintained by God as the people prepare to meet with the Lord through Moses... God gives them instructions as to what they are to do and where they are to go. What they are to do and where they are to go. First, God tells them, look there in verse 10. I want you to see this. Good to have your Bibles open right in front of you. They are to consecrate themselves. You know what that means, right? That just means set them apart, right? They are holy people, set apart, unique, distinct. 
And they're supposed to wash their garments as a symbol of purity. That's what they are to do. But second, he tells them where they are to go or where they are to not go. Look there, verse 12. Moses is to set limits around the mountain, saying, don't go up there. It is a holy mountain. Again, not because the land is holy, but because God is going to be there and wherever God is, is holy. He says there, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, that is shot with arrows. Whether beast or man, it says there, he shall not live. Now I know some of you guys might be thinking like, what in the world is going on? Shot to death by archers, simply for touching a mountain, even if a beast touches the mountain, they too are to be killed? Come on, don't you think it's a little bit extreme, you Christians? Well, friends, we need to understand what happens here in Exodus according to what happened in Genesis, right? This is how you, how you read any book. Uh, unless you're going to read a phone book, but this is not a phone book. You don't read the Bible like you read a phone book. You read a Bible like you read any other piece of literature. So we, if you think back to Genesis, God had drawn another boundary. Here we see a boundary at Sinai. Well, God had drawn another boundary because of sin. The only reason why there is a boundary at all is because of man's sin. Before Adam and Eve had sinned, if you think back to Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2, they enjoyed free and full fellowship with God. The, the Bible even says that God had walked among them in some sense. They had free access to Him. But because they sinned, they therefore created a, gate, a great chasm between the holy and then the unholy, that is themselves. This great chasm that was caused between them and God. You've got to ask the question, well, how is it that man and God can have fellowship after Genesis 3? That's the question. They are, in fact, kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And a boundary is established, a flaming sword to guard the tree of life, which meant really fellowship with God and meant the blessings of God. So what happens here needs to be understood in relation to Genesis chapter 3. Naturally, there is this distinction between the holy and the unholy. And you too feel this. I mean, if you get gather around, however you might describe whole unholy and unclean people, a dirty people, a diseased people, you want a barrier. Now, sometimes that is not good. But you yourselves here, you, you understand this distinction here. The Bible says of God, listen to this from Habakkuk, your eyes, speaking of God's eyes, are too pure to look on evil. And there he's not talking about he's too pure to even see our unrighteous deeds. He's just talking about you're too pure uh, to have fellowship with evil. And in some senses, it is right, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and that evil one day will be judged. Listen to this, Psalm 34, verse 16. The face of the Lord is against all evildoers. So friends, ever since man was kicked out of the Garden of Eden for having sinned against God, the question remains, how does sinful man get back into fellowship with a holy God? How will God, how can God meet with a sinful people? That's what our passage today calls us to ask, not only of the Israelites, but of our very own selves. The Bible says that we too are sinful just like Adam and Eve. We too are born with the same nature as they are. Not only that though, but we sin against God and even delight to do so at times. So in between us and Him, there is in fact a great chasm and indeed a future judgment. The Bible says even judgment in hell. 
And so when we look at Exodus chapter 19, we need to keep in mind this great chasm. We need to keep in mind the sin of Adam and Eve, which led to death and judgment entering into the world. We need to keep in mind in Genesis chapter 6, the wickedness of the hearts of men were full All of the hearts of men were wicked, as it says there, and that leads to the great flood. We need to keep in mind here the hearts of pride that led folks to build the Tower of Babel, desiring a name that only God has, a stature and a glory that only God has there in Genesis chapter 11. We need to keep in mind here the sin of Israel, who who wanted, in fact, to abandon their sovereign God and go back to slavery to Egypt, who wanted, in fact, to kill Moses, their God-given leader. There you can see that in Exodus chapter 13. With all that in mind, isn't it amazing that God actually draws near to his people at all? That God actually says, I am going to meet with you. Yes, there are boundaries, but I, the Lord, full of glory, full of holy, full of, full of holiness, full of righteousness, am going to meet with you. This actually speaks of God's grace and mercy in the face of our continual turning. Yet God is merciful. If you skim there, look at 16 to 25. You see everything that happens here when the Lord comes down. It is an unforgettable sight, one that would move any observer to tremble at the holiness of God. In verse 16, there are thunders, plural, and lightnings. There's a thick cloud. There's loud trumpet blasts. You know, when I think of this stuff, um, there have been unique sounds that have gone on in the world. Have you guys, you guys hear this stuff? You can type in, like, trumpet blasts on YouTube. And you hear these strange atmospheric sounds, absolutely unnerving. We don't, scientists don't know why that happens, uh, at least as far as I know. Maybe there's some scientists here who can explain it. But when I think of that, this is not, that's nothing compared to the trumpet blast that's going on here on Mount Sinai. When the Lord himself, the creator of all the universe, reveals himself to his people. Verse 18, you look there, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Most likely it was not burning, just as the burning bush was not burning when Moses uh, spoke to God there. And it says there the smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln. As the whole mountain trembled greatly, verse 19, the trumpets get louder and louder. And then God answers Moses in the thunder, verse 20, and the Lord comes down on Sinai. This is an awful scene that is full of awe. So much so that the people there, if you turn over to 2018, you see that, that, that they hear the thunder, the flashes of lightning, they heard the trumpet sound, and then it says that they stood far off. Which some commentators note that in 19, they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and then in verse, tw- in verse 18 of chapter 20, they are far off, as in they ran away because of God's holiness and his presence there on the mountain. This is a regular occurrence that happens when one stands before a holy Lord. You think of Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I have beheld the glory of the Lord. You think of Peter when he realized that the one who stands before him in the boat is the holy Lord. He too says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What's amazing, once again, is that God draws near not to judge the people. He doesn't do that. Which he would have, though, every single right to. He draws near to restore his people, to help his people become what he had designed them to be. They are, in fact, his treasured possession. And he is helping them to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation designed to display his glory to the watching world. God had given Abraham this task. He had, in fact, given Adam and Eve this task. 
So here the Lord draws near really to help them. And he helps them, now we come to point three, by giving them his law. The people are commanded by the Holy God. This is chapter 20. The people are commanded by the Holy God. Here he helps them live as he has designed them. Here are the Ten Commandments, which functions as a summary of all of God's law, is an expression of, of the kingdom charter, so to speak. You have God building his kingdom. We hear the Ten Commandments as representing the whole entire law. We have the kingdom charter, so to speak. So if you want to know what the character of God is like, you can, in fact, look at his law. And we see what God is concerned about. These commands are not merely commands and law. The amazing thing is that they are an expression of God's very will. They were not only to govern how the people lived and how we too are to live, but through them we come to know more of God's moral nature. Uh, historically, Christians have seen the law in its entirety, so you can think most uh, um, clearly of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch, that is the law of Moses. And then you can think too of the whole entire Old Testament as the law. But when it comes to, let's say, the first five books of the Old Testament, that is the law, uh, church history shows that P Christians have divided up that law into three different categories. Whether or not we go with this that route as in terms of the moral law that we see here summarized in the Ten Commandments, there is also the ceremonial law. So what Israel was to do is they worshipped God, you know, what they were to do in the tabernacle, the temple, etc. Um, and then you can think of also the social aspects of the law. So we're going to get into that next week. Uh, here we see that the Ten Commandments is, at the, its very least, a summary of God's moral law. And certainly these things here, they play into today. Which is why someone like Paul the Apostle can actually cite the Ten Commandments. He cites, you know, he encourages children in, in the book of Ephesians to obey your parents and the Lord. And he cites uh, the Ten Commandments here. So certainly in the New Testament, the Ten Commandments, uh, and most importantly, the moral law continues. But in terms of the structure of the Ten Commandments... The first four commandments have to do with love of God. Think, you know, we're, we're trying to see what, do, what is God concerned about for his holy people. First four have to do with the love for God, and then the remaining six have to do with the love for man. Love for God, love for man. And this, you know, if we know Jesus' words, this should remind us of Jesus' concerns as he himself summarizes the two pillars of the, whole, of the law. In the New Testament, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's a way of summarizing the whole entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So again, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, and you think that Christianity is all about the law and rules, and then you say, I don't want, I don't want this Christianity. First, I kindly submit to you that that's incorrect. It's really all about how you can have true life under the one and only true God. That's what the law is about. right? Remember, he's helping his, his created people know how to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to display his glory to the world. That's why God gives his law here. Second, I would also say, you know, you, uh, I mean, who would not want God's law? Because, friends, when I turn on the television, when I look at the news... I see a world that needs law. I see murders and sexual assaults. I want law. 
I see some people stealing things, and maybe some, maybe you guys have, have uh, had things stolen from you. Do you not want law and something called justice? If we look at ourselves even, we need law to help regulate our very own passions that we cannot regulate. The question then is, whose law is best? Whose law is truly good and truly righteous? Well, friends, the Bible says that God's law is perfect because it comes from Him who is perfect. I mean, just take one moment and just think if everybody were out for themselves here in this church gathering. Imagine if there is no law. I had a conversation with one of my children recently. uh, And, uh, you know, I was saying, look, there are some people who break the law of God. You know, just imagine, okay, God says, do not steal. And let's say you do not worship this God. Who defines if stealing is good or bad? And naturally, the child said, well, you know what? We do. If there is no God, what are we left to do? Just imagine if this whole congregation, each and every single one of you, were given the task of determining your own law, and then we just have at it. You just fight for survival. This is a very dangerous place. I hope you see that if you just know your own hearts. This is not a good place without the law of God. The holy law, his perfect law, his righteous law. Let's, let's look at this here. The opening line of the covenant. Look there in verse 2. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The statement here is an affirmation of all that God is. He is the Lord. In Hebrew, it is Yahweh. Conveys the meaning that he is the only sovereign God who is over all, but who is also with his people. After all, he is delivering a people. He says that I brought you out on eagle's wings to myself. You see that aspect of relationship again? He is a God who is over all and a God who is with his people. And here he delivered them out of Egypt. So he alone has the power to deliver. And if you guys remember, those of you who have been with us through the book of Exodus, you know that God was uh, executing judgments on their so-called gods. Pharaoh himself was seen as divine and... uh, and the people, they, to some degree, worshipped him. They, they worshipped a pantheon of gods. And so as God comes along to judge Egypt, what he's doing is he's showing his sovereignty over all of these so-called gods. And it is from this Lord that all the following commands come from. Let's look at these one by one. Let's look at what the Holy Lord says his holy nation is to live like. Uh, let's start with commands one to four, which is, Uh, The concern there is to love God. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is command number 1. You shall have no other gods before me. This here is an affirmation of monotheism. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are some who try and understand this commandment and say, Oh, what he's saying is no uh, polytheism. Worshiping many gods is still okay, but God should be the first of many gods. But we know, once again, in light of the context here, that that makes absolutely no sense. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, there is one God and he creates all things. Psalm 46 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then again, we look at the plagues there and God is bringing judgments on all of the so-called gods, making the point that he alone is the sovereign God. Command number 2, verse 4, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. That is, basically, you shouldn't make anything in the image of anything in my world. 
to worship. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This commandment here keeps us from domesticating God. It keeps us from domesticating God. In making idols, what you do is you see the, the, uh, you see the invisible God. You know that there is this invisible God, the one God. And then you make him into the image of the stuff of man here. You make him visible. You're domesticating God is what it is. And did you notice here that we are commanded to not bow down to them or serve them? That's all grounded in the fact that God is a jealous God. Remember, he alone, there's only one God. There's only one sovereign God. And so he is jealous of all that he himself is. Now, we typically, for those of you who have had perhaps some jealous boyfriends or girlfriends, we typically don't like the idea of God being a jealous God. We think of that jealous significant other insecure of your love towards him or her, but this is not God's jealousy. At the center of God's jealousy is his desire to protect everything that goodness is. Because that's who he is. His jealousy is, at the center of God's jealousy is his desire to protect everything that holiness is. Because that's what he is. And the center of his jealousy is, is the desire to protect all that is righteous because that is who he is. So it is not selfish or bad or insecure to want and desire all that is good and right and lovely. We don't have to go very far in the book of Exodus to remember what happens when God's created people worship other gods. Just think for a moment. What would happen if God, uh, uh, sorry, if Israel abandoned the Lord, the one true God, in order to worship Pharaoh and all of his gods? This Pharaoh, who, who thought it was okay to kill baby children, throw the babies in the Nile, enslave other people. What would happen if Israel wandered away from the Lord, let's say, and worshiped the God of Molech, uh, first referred to in the book of Genesis? And worshiping Moloch involved offering up children in the fire to this so-called God. More recently, what happened if God's people were to abandon God and worship the principles of Hitler and social Darwinism and survival of the fittest? Well, you, you know what happened in Hitler. He eliminated millions and millions of people. That's what happens. Or how about Chairman Mao, whose scholars think that he legislated the deaths of 70 million of his own people? Friends, you realize that this happens here too. Think of the God of convenience that we have here in America that is marketed to the millions. The God of convenience that led to the legislation of the approval of slavery. That now continues abortion and a whole other host of ills that has made this nation, a nation in many ways of darkness. Don't you want God to be jealous for everything that is good and righteous and lovely? I want you to be jealous for those things. Do you want someone who lives next to you who just says, yeah, I think it's actually good to take my neighbor's life whenever I want to. I don't need the law. Do you want that person living as your next door neighbor? No, the answer is. We all want a law. The question is, where will we get this law? And friends, this is not up to us. 
It's up to God who is all holy and all just and he loves, he's jealous for his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness because that is what he is. Here in the Ten Commandments, God is helping his people be jealous for him because they oftentimes don't know how to be. Just as he is jealous for them, so he wants them to be jealous for him. So that's, that's his jealousy there. Let's move on to commandment number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know, in the ancient cultures, and even in some cultures today, maybe the cultures that you come from, a person's name is often equated with his character. So if you malign the name, you malign the character, and so it is with, with the Lord. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, he illustrates the problem of taking the Lord's name in vain. He does it really well. This is what he says. He says, imagine someone stubs their toe and then exclaims the name of Jesus Christ, almost like a curse word. And let's say we all had you know, the courage to turn to that person and say, you know, please do not use the name of my Savior in that way. And then they come back and they respond, oh, you know what, uh, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. Well, Carson says that's the whole point, isn't it? You don't mean anything by it. This is the name of the Lord. The name who possesses every name above every, oh, sorry, the name above all names. The name to which every knee will bow and every single tongue confess that he is Lord and you mean nothing by it? All of creation deserves its praise and even all the inanimate objects, as the book of Psalms says, they clap their hands when the Lord comes and you mean nothing by it. So here this is making the sacred, the holy, unsacred. This is why God does not want us to domesticate his name, even by making images of God to look like images, sorry, to make images of uh, the stuff of the earth to represent God. Uh, because we make we take that as that which is sacred and make it unrighteous or unsacred or just simply the common stuff, the common stuff. In protecting his name, we therefore protect his character among the nations. So we should genuinely ask, do you use God's name in vain? Do you use the name of Jesus Christ as if it were like you saying, oh man. Or much worse, as a curse word. Let's move to commandment four. Look at verse eight. Verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sabbath means to cease, to rest. It is something that seems like such an insignificant commandment. Like he's telling us to have a day off. Like, yeah, awesome. Like that's his main point. Well, actually, that's not really his main point. The people of Israel were in fact to rest But that's really patterned after God's rest in creation. When the Lord creates, he then rests on the Sabbath day and then says, look, you all are to rest as well, just as I did. The Sabbath day was not a day committed to watching extra TV or working on your hobbies. 
Resting on this day was an affirmation of all that God is. It's an affirmation of all that God is and a recognition of all that He has done. That He is, in fact, the Creator. That He is, in fact, the Sustainer. And so we rest from doing work because God has it covered, folks. And it's also a testimony in Him there is all of our rest, as Hebrews chapter 4 says. Sabbath rest is ultimately found in Jesus. The people were to commit their Sabbath to the corporate worship of the Lord. So when you think Sabbath, you connect it to the corporate worship of the Lord. Worship of Yahweh, the Sovereign One, the God who is with His people, the God who delivers. This day signifies that you know, all of the people who were to rest on the Sabbath, now in the New Testament, we are not commanded to gather on Saturday. We see that there is a pattern of gathering together on the Lord's Day. So in some ways you can call this the Christian Sabbath. Ultimately, the point here is that we are to be devoted to the Lord, as it says there in verse 10. The people of Israel were to be the people of the Lord, marked by a love for him and a worship of him as the Sabbath day protected. Commands 5 through 10. Now we turn to a concern for loving one another. These commands um, are a lot more self-explanatory. Command number 5. Look there, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So here the focus is the land. It's prospering in the land. Uh, Now, interesting children, if you are a child here, oftentimes we think of, you know, here at church, we speak to the big people. Now, actually, we're speaking to little people because God does. He says, honor your father and your mother. He's talking to you, children. He says here, don't take your father and mother's wisdom lightly. He says, you feel the weight. Take it seriously. And this verse here speaks so much more than simply listening to your parents. It's not just take out the trash when they tell me to take out the trash. This verse actually speaks about how we can protect the love of the Lord. This is, you know, for those of you who are familiar with Deuteronomy 6... Here he has that in mind. Parents, right, are to teach their children about all that the Lord is doing, whether they're walking on the path, whether they're going to bed, whether they're having dinner time. Uh, there the parents teach the children, and it implies that the children are listening to honor your father and mother in the Lord, that it might go well with you in the land that he is giving. So the children, by God's grace, they hear, they come to know the Lord. Through the speaking of gospel truths, and then as the children receive the gospel truths by God's grace. And so God's steadfast love goes to generation to generation, designed that way. Contrast this to parents who work iniquity and teach their children and their children's children to sin against him. Right? In verse 9, I think that's what in, what, what is, uh, sorry, not in verse 9, but I think that's what, in, what is implied there in verse 5. Of chapter 20, turn over there. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The implication there is that the the fathers and the mothers are teaching their children wickedness. That's why God brings his judgment to generation to generation. Contrast that to those who are listening to the counsel, the wisdom of their parents in the Lord. Well, steadfast love goes to generation to generation. Commandment number six here, don't murder. You shall not murder. This refers to murder as opposed to killing in war or something like that. 
Now, it's easy to make this point, you know, do you want somebody who, who is going to kill you living as your next-door neighbor? The answer is no. And we, you can see how many people are deceived. Many people here in America are confused about what exactly even it means to love their neighbors or to love people made in the image of God. While your neighbor might not be plotting to take your life, or maybe they are, they just haven't carried it out, uh, yet there are millions of people who think it's okay to take the lives of their own children. But yet God, as he makes his, as he's taking a people to be his treasured possession, as he's making them a kingdom of priests to be, be his ambassadors, as he's making them a holy nation, he wants his people to guard life. He legislates even for the people what they are to do to protect life and see that life would flourish. Do not murder. Commandment 7, let's move on. He says, don't commit adultery. God's people are to protect the basic building block of society marriage god's people are not to do things that threaten the family structure so amidst all of the world think of the rest of the world imagine the world's practices here of sexual immorality or adultery or pornography the people of god his holy nation are to be different they are to be unique they are to be pure and to seek the protection of families as opposed to seeking selfish pleasure at the expense of others and if you want to know the devastation that comes from adultery or even pornography, I'm sure many of you guys can even testify of these types of things, those of you who come from perhaps broken families. Commandment number eight, don't steal. God's people here are to be about the protection of other people's property. So not only are they to protect life, they are to protect, not only are they to protect marriages, but they are supposed to protect economic relationships. So here God desires that his people protect the financial safety and security of others, as opposed to stealing the finances of others for our own selfish gain. And by the way, he is not, God not only says that his people are to do this with their own people, as in the Hebrews, but to strangers as well. And in fact, to their enemies. Turn over to 23 verse 4. Chapter 23 verse 4. A lot of people think that it's only Jesus in the New Testament who tells the church to uh, God's people to you know, look out for their enemies. But here in the Old Testament even, God says, look there in 23.4, if you meet your enemy's ox, have you guys done this lately? <laughs> or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Your enemy's ox. So it's not only Jesus who talks about turning the other cheek and loving your enemy. Here's the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. By the way, the reason why the ox is so important, the donkey is so important, is because people made their living off of the ox and the donkey. So he's saying, look, protect their economic relationships there. Let's go ahead and move on. Commandment number nine, he says, don't bear false witness. So here what God's people are to protect is they are to be God's holy nation. They're supposed to protect the reputation of others. So simple, we're not supposed to lie, we're not supposed to damage the reputation of others, whether we are in a formal dispute or whether we are tempted to gossip. Commandment number 10, it says there, don't covet. Uh, that is, uh, I'll go ahead and read that section. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting here just speaks of an ungoverned, selfish desire for anything. Don't covet unselfish, un, uh, sorry, a ungoverned, selfish desire for anything. 
And here's interesting, this last commandment actually gets at what the heart does. Because it's the heart that gives birth to sinful actions. And here we should hear an echo of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve desired, it's the same word, desired the fruit there in her uncontrolled desire of the flesh. This commandment too, to not covet anything that is your neighbor's, falls underneath a big category of loving your neighbor. Don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, neighbor's servants, animals, anything that is my neighbor's. The implication then is to be content with everything that God gives us. <clears throat> so in summary, in relation to this ten, in the Ten Commandments, in all of these things, we have to remember that the, that the people here are being claimed by a holy God. They have been met by the holy God as God bridges the great chasm, and then they receive the commands from the holy God. He's taking them to be his treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he does so that they might display his glory among the nations. Friends, in terms of application, I know that's a lot, but in terms of application, you know that uh, just as God took them to be his treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation, so he does with the New Testament church. That's why we had Jared read the passage that he read. Go ahead and turn there again. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. If you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't know their way around the scripture, you can help them get there. Here Peter is addressing the people of God, Hebrews and Jews, spiritual Israel as it says in Galatians. It's interesting, you actually go back to chapter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles, so they're wandering in the desert too. The, the dispersion, they who are wandering, making their way to the final city of heaven. And then in chapter 2, he says there in verse 9, but you are a chosen race or people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. He says they're a people from God's very possession. So they too are, are the same intention there that God has with Israel, so he has with the New Testament church. And in 1 Peter, we even see God's intention to display his glory among the nations through proclamation and then personal and public life. So this is you guys, okay? So you see there in proclamation, look there in 2.9, that you may, this is the purpose statement, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's proclaiming. Testi testifying to his character through proclaiming. And then verse 11, it says, he speaks about uh, personal public life. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What's fascinating here is that he's speaking to a majority Gentile church. So he has this category that there is a there, there are spiritual Gentiles that they're spiritually they don't know God and so they are spiritual Gentiles even though he's talking to a very much non-Jewish church keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation that is the day that Christ returns so here you have you have the spiritual the non-spiritual people the people who reject God are to see all of your good deeds. And all of your holy character that resembles God the Holy One and glorify God at the day of Christ's visitation. 
You know, the challenge I think many Christians have is that sometimes we see the commands of Scripture and we forget that the commands are grounded in what God has done for us and are intricately tied to what God wants to do through us. So some of us, we approach the commands and we get so wrapped up in, well, I need to fulfill these things and we somehow think wrongly that we do these things to earn our salvation or we get in good with God we get in good with a holy God and we fulfill his holy commands. But that's not the purpose of the commands. They are never designed to save and to bring salvation. Remember, God had already entered into covenant with his people. And we get so wrapped up in trying to fulfill every single one of these things that our eyes become taken off of the holy God and go to the commands in and of themselves. But that's not what God's plan is here. In 1 Peter, it says that we have been born again to a living hope because we are saved through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we ought to live to the praise of his glory. So we ought to be concerned as sojourners and exiles in this world to abstain from the pleasures of the flesh and then therefore to pursue holiness. It's because we are saved by a holy God, by his grace, for his glory, and all according to his mercy and his love, that we then begin to enter into our God's loves. And so he even changes us. He makes us holy. He sanctifies us. And so we, we look at the law, and then if we understand it rightly, it becomes very good because it displays the character of a holy God. So in Romans chapter 7, he says the law is a good thing, Paul says. He's referring to the Old Testament law. He says it is a good thing. Why is it? Because it displays God's holy character. And it shows us our sin, doesn't it? He says, if I did not see this command, do not covet, he says, I wouldn't know what it meant to covet. But now that I see the command, I realize how covetous I am, and I realize how sinful I am, and therefore I turn to God who saves sinners. I realize my unrighteousness, and I turn to God, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And I say, thank God I have salvation even though I cannot fulfill the law's demands. I have one who fulfilled it for me. The righteous one. The one mediator, Jesus Christ. And we give glory in the gospel. That's how Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the law is good because it points me to Jesus who fulfills it. And I need his grace and I need his mercy to live according to how God, our holy Lord, commands us. This brings us back, actually, to the great chasm. As we continue to think about Exodus 19 and 20 and apply it to us today, there's still the unanswered question regarding the great chasm between the unholy people and a holy God. I read Exodus 19, and I think the people are right to tremble at the presence in the presence of a holy Lord. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, after the Lord delivers his law and the thunder and the lightning and the cloud, the people fear. They think there, there that God is going to come down to judge and destroy them. And then Moses, who mediates God's presence for them, he says, no. God here does not desire to judge you. He's telling you these things so that you might not sin. That's what it says in 2018. Friends, you see that at Mount Sinai, the Lord sought to calm the people's fears. As Moses spoke to them about freedom from judgment. And you realize that he does similarly in Jesus Christ. But the big difference in sending Jesus Christ. He not only calms the fears of the people. He achieves freedom from judgment. 
We Christians are called, we are met, and we are indeed commanded by a holy God. Yet in Christ, there is no fear. There ought not be fear in Jesus Christ. Because God the Righteous One has bridged the gap, the great chasm between the unholy and the holy. And he has gone all the way, not only in appearing among a sinful people, but dwelling among them. In sending the Holy Son of God to take on flesh and live among us, he stoops, not in a self-righteous way, but with all humility to save a sinful people. In sending Christ to die on the cross, it was not as though God set his demands, his holiness and his righteousness aside forever. No, in the cross, friends, God fulfills all of his demands of holiness and righteousness. According to Romans chapter 3. While we were yet sinners, it says elsewhere, Christ died for us and bore the wrath that we deserve. So that now all those who trust in him, who turn from their unholiness, their unrighteousness and their sin are counted righteous before him. As 1 Corinthians 1.30 reads, Christ Jesus became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And now for those who are righteous in Jesus Christ, we are loved by the Father, we are adopted into his family, we are fully and freely forgiven because Christ Jesus, the mediator, is a mediator of a new and better covenant. To conclude, let me speak to you if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian. Friends, as the Bible says, all people find themselves separated from God because of our own unrighteousness. And even though God is the offended party, he nevertheless, in his grace and his mercy, initiates salvation in Jesus Christ. It's all according to his initiation. He initiates this in his great love to bridge the great chasm. And in so doing, he calls everyone, everyone to turn from their sin and know the God of salvation. Know your very own creator. So friends, this passage calls us to repent of your sin. And to believe on Jesus Christ, the only one who can bridge the great chasm that stands before you. And the holy God, your very own creator. And friends, keep in mind, there will come a time. According to the book of Revelation, when Christ will make his holiness known in a manner of judgment. It's not the holiness that he brings to sinners who need it. But the holiness he uses to judge sinners who despise it. And it will be far worse than at Mount Sinai. When Christ comes in all of his glory. But thank God once again that the door of salvation stands open. To anyone and everyone who would repent of their sins and believe. And to know that God. Friends, you realize that later on we go and see that Moses actually, he, God called him up to Mount Sinai to meet with him face to face. Or at least through the burning bush. He later on calls the priest to go up to him. It's not that you cannot come never and forever you cannot come. It is, you, you can come. But only through his stipulations. And he stipulates that you can come to Jesus now and you see God and all of his forgiveness and his law and his grace and his mercy and know his holiness as the good creator. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you praise as the Holy One. We thank you that you are jealous for your righteousness. 
because it is in you that we can trust. Help us as your church be zealous for your glory and your holiness and your righteousness. Lord, we pray that we would be so jealous of those things too that it would actually work its way out into how we love one another. That we would seek to protect one another. Our marriages, our economic relationships, our names, our property, our well-being. Because it reflects a little bit of your magnificent glory. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the prime example, the number one example of what it looks like to live according to your law. He who gave himself to the death so that sinners would be loved and secure in in him. Father, we pray that we would love your law just as David did in the Old Testament, just as Jesus did in the New Testament. Lord, we pray that we would cherish it, that we would hide it in our hearts, that we too might not sin against you. Lord, we pray that your law and your word would light our path, that we would walk according to it, and so know more of your holy character. Lord, we pray that you would use us, even right now, to display your glory to the watching world. Father, we thank you that there is indeed access to you through Jesus Christ, who is greater than Moses, through Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice, once and for all, who took away sin, and through him we have access to the Father. In your name we pray.